It's time to talk music, audio gear, and anything else that crosses our minds. I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. And welcome to the Hareton Audio Podcast. So this week, we've been trying to put our studio together so it's more efficient. And we have had some serious, serious disasters in that from defective equipment that we had bought that had um, arrived, you know, in the not best condition or damaged to um, getting out older interfaces, particularly Firewire interfaces, and then realising that uh, our Windows PC did not want to talk to them at all. And um, having to make some big decisions really in our own studio about how are we going to solve these problems? Are these problems we want to solve? And um, also, you know, the, the pitfalls of sort of building your own studio, especially when things, you know, don't go right. Yeah, and I think you see a lot, like, um, from music software and hardware companies of, like, the ideal studio. You know, you have, like, a, a nice, like, output desk you know they have a real nice one and it looks very like social media friendly and i think a lot of the companies use it because they know that one of the other companies sells it do you know what i mean so you see it quite a lot yeah um they have that they have like their their uh ua apollo interface at one side they have like a nice desktop synth and a you know one super long monitor ultra wide monitor and that's like the dream studio that you see um, you know, like the dream project home studio that they sort of like market. Otherwise, the contrast to that is like, uh, you know, like the inside of Abbey Road, basically. Oh, what words? Just hardware for days. You mean? Yeah, and it's like a massive, you know, ninety-two channel mixing desk or whatever. You know, uh, that that seems to be like the two contrasts in how it's marketed. And um, yes, there's the super sleek, minimal, door-based producer, and then there's the hardware aficionado nightmare which it it looks so cool until you have to wire it up that's the full thing isn't it yeah and i suppose this is why a lot of studios have designated tech teams that all they do is make sure things work because when you're say if you're in a reasonably well-equipped project studio that doesn't have a tech because it's a your project your your home studio and you've got like quite a lot of rack gear, you've got a fair few synths, you've got some patch bays, and then all of a sudden this is starting to become a nightmare to keep track of because every time you want to change something, you've got to change all your patch bays, you've got to rewrite sort of like what you're using some of the equipment for because a lot of the time equipment can be very versatile and you can use equipment sort of for one function, even though they're marketed to use for like 20, you can just say, well, I've got this thing and I'm only using it to set the gains. And I'm not, I don't care about the routing. I don't care about anything else. All I want to use this piece of gear for is to set the gains or, or like a headphone mixer or stuff like that. Yeah. And that's, that's what it's like when you see a lot of the time they'll use like a, a Mackie 16 track mixing desks in bigger studios as just like the drummer's monitor mixer. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's all it's there for, is just so they can, you know, set their own levels with their headphones because it's, I suppose it's quite difficult. If the drummer wants to hear their kit whilst they're playing, 
Well, they're going to want to hear there's 15 or 16 mics, even like eight mics or whatever they've got in these bigger studios. They might say, well, I want to hear the kick and snare, but I don't want to hear the other stuff as much. And then that's why, you know, it's easier for them just to get, have their own monitor mix. And then they don't need to ask. They can just to do go it. on the talk back and go, can I have like 5 dB off the left on mic or whatever? You know, it's, it, it's not very practical. So you see like that sort of use for a lot of studio gear. The problem is when you're having to make the decisions and use all the stuff and then understand all the stuff is you're trying to wear all the hats at once, which everybody says is real fun until things start going wrong. And then that's when you've got like a a Firewire card that won't talk to your computer and you're going, well, it's all set up correctly. And then you realize, you know, you go on the gear page or whatever and you realize there's a driver issue that's got nothing to do with the way you've set it up that's, you know, hampering its performance and it's not your PC. Yeah, there's something about trying to troubleshoot a problem and rolling back drivers and doing these things that are very sort of technical, you know, because realistically, when you buy, say, an interface, you're supposed to touch the... You're supposed to just do the panel, work with the panel, and then the software that comes with it. That interface is not really expecting you to go into your, like, device setup and try and alternate drivers out and disable cards and swap in different cards and stuff like that in your PC. It, it, because that's that's not really that's not really the consumer's problem. If if you ask most people, like, you know, you should be able to just run the software or run the hardware and it should be easy. So that was very frustrating, especially when you do everything you can and you don't fix the problem. Um because then you look and go, well, I'm either gonna have this device cause a massive problem in this studio or everybody hates to do it you have to look at replacing it so obviously this weekend has been the black friday week so i went well damn if i'm gonna replace it it has to be today because this is where a lot of the deals tend to be particularly in audio interfaces because audio interfaces much like um much like, I'm trying to think about things you replace, I suppose, phones, um Like kitchen laptops, appliances. Kitchen appliances. Yeah. Audio interfaces are in that market where everybody has to have one to make music, really. And it's also the thing that's probably going to be the most frequently replaced thing in the studio, which is it's crazy to me because it's like the brains. I think the problem, like we've talked about in the past with general equipment is i've sort of got very funny about if it doesn't have a jack or xlr in and out i don't want it because if it's just a usb or whatever port to the computer and that's how it and it's handled in like a plug-in form you know i find that really really challenging to use because a lot of the time the products get outdated before you get your money's worth out. See, it's not when it comes out and it works amazingly, is it? As you're saying, it's when Windows or Mac updates and people don't keep the drivers in line or the company says, well, we're sunsetting this item and blah, blah, blah. And then you sit there and go, well, hang on. If you sunset the software updates, then this thing that, you know, and some of it gets quite expensive it gets up like well into the thousands and stuff you look at this thing and go well i'm gonna have like thousand quid paperweight or i have to freeze my you know software setup freeze my os which i i we don't like freezing the os because if you want to stay on track with the latest stuff particularly like say the latest version of cubase or portals or anything like that it's very challenging to do that and freeze your setup because you know you're going to get locked out eventually 
Yeah, and the thing is, is like I think a lot of this, a lot of this stuff was like like a fad about ten years ago, when there were, when particularly in like the Firewire era, we saw a lot of products coming out that was like, well, you can just use Firewire and it will communicate with the plugins in your door, like in plugin form, and you won't need to worry about plugging it in and plugging it out and recording it because it'll do it via the software. And what happened was, you know, Mac. And well, Windows and Mac sort of both abandoned Firewire simultaneously. Almost, it felt like almost immediately. And then (laughs) a lot of the Firewire products and a lot of the companies making them was like, oh no. I mean, and this is the same thing. Like we've seen this with, say, like Digitex iStomp. I was literally about to mention the Digitex iStomp. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Go on. You tell them about the Digitex iStomp. So the Digitex iStomp, for any people who don't know, and, and to be honest, I think they are a very obscure product because even shows like the JHS Pedal Show haven't really really done a deep dive into this thing so this is a guitar pedal that is a host for essentially a digital emulation of one of it's something like 50 um digitech style pedals or to be honest there's a lot of stuff like tube screamers and other brands sort of cloned in there as well and it worked really really well i actually ended up with three of them and um, the sounded great. I mean, I, I remember the boss style chorus just sounding like, and I ended up getting a um, boss was a C2W, um, which is like the premium boss chorus sound. And the Digitech one really did almost the exact same thing. And it did it in true stereo, which the, the boss one sort of doesn't do because if you do stereo with the boss pedal, it's a wet dry situation. But um it worked really, really well, and it sounded fantastic. The problem is you had to have an iPod app and or an iPhone app, but it was so, you know, outdated. I mean, this is, this is tech that was probably stopped being supported in about 2014 or 2012 or something. Yeah, because it had the big, fat um iphone connecting yeah yeah the the smaller ones ones. so it was the 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 super wide and long one so you had an adapter to take it to the smaller like chip looking one and and the other thing was the adapters didn't work because macs you know mac do what they do with the adapters so to make sure they don't work and so you're trying to balance this cable with its adapter um going into the the phone and you're trying to hold it all still so it doesn't disconnect because it's super flimsy to design this thing. Um, just so you can swap your chorus to a phaser, for example. And it's like, you sat there thinking, if I just had these, if I could take these pedals out and put them in my computers, you know, VST, or if I could just replace the iPod with a Windows program. Or, or even like if on the pedals themselves, you just had a switcher where you could just yeah, go... Yeah, like a roll switch. A roll yeah. through to go through all the different multi-effects, which obviously Zoom's multi-effects pedals and things, they just have a, a one-knob rotation, don't well, they? Well, I think, obviously we didn't design the pedal, but theoretically, there is no reason why you couldn't have had... Like a forward and back a, button. A built-in, yeah, a built-in menu and a built-in hard drive and everything to sort through. I mean, the iPod can't be storing much data, if any. I think the idea was just to make the pedal so it worked with an iPod. So it was like, a wow, that's cool. Your phone controls the pedal. And this this is what worries me with like the UAD pedals because it's like, it it's great while it works. 
And luckily with the UAD pedals, you know, you can't get locked out. And also with the eye stomps, they all still work as singular pedals. And I have kept a iPhone 4 about. I can still switch them. So it's not a nightmare. But if that iPhone 4 dies, I'm stuffed. (laughs) I can't do it anymore. But they will stay, providing they don't get factory reset as the pedals you last loaded in. So that's handy. But this is the same with the UAD pedals, like the the new range, which look super slick and really nice. But there's something that I find really unsettling about having having to access certain features through an app on your phone. But I believe a lot of them, and I'd have to check this, I I believe that you can do it on PC as well. I I don't think you're locked onto a phone. Yeah, because when you think about the Boss Boss Was a Tube Expander and UAD uh, equivalent one, which I can't remember what it was called now. Uh, The Oxbox, I believe. The Oxbox. One of the selling points for you was that Bosses came with a Windows app. Uh, you know, like yeah. a Windows desktop. Or just a, a PC desktop app, yeah, whereas yeah. the um, Oxbox was like an iPad app or an Android app, which I don't, I do not like using apps because they sound great. They're great when they work, they're great. But if you hit this issue where somebody rolls out an update on Apple or Android or whatever, and half of your studio bricks itself, you're like, oh, damn. <laughs> That's like a lot of money I invested and it doesn't work anymore. And the thing is, is like, I think a lot of people, they idolise these vintage studios with vintage kit. And a lot of the vintage kit, you know, it works because that's it. There is no other, there's no third party that they have to interface with. This is the genius of, say, um, you know, XLR jacks or MIDI. Like, they did really well so early on in since to create the MIDI protocol so that you didn't have this clocking issue all of the time. I mean, it's, it's bonkers, actually, that you you have, like, a collection of, like, 1990s and late 80s um, studio rack mounts, don't you, Mark? And and they all connect via so, MIDI, and you just, you just use your brand-new Cubase or whatever it is to just tell them exactly what to do, and that is, that's bananas, really. So I have a 16 1U rack synth rack that I've sort of collected, and it's got a handful of EMU ones. It's got a Novation Air Station, a uh, Roland XV5050, a Yamaha TG500, and a N-Sonic MR rack, and um, SQR as well. Uh, yeah, and Ensonic SQR and a Yamaha TX81Z. All of these synths were created, you know, like two decades, three decades ago in some cases. Like the oh, also, every single one is discontinued. Every single one thing to discontinued for decades before I bought it as well. So this entire rack, right, works very well. No issues. No interface issues when connecting it to a computer and that's what you want that's why i bought them like if i was buying usb-c in desktop synths it's so hard to guarantee that now because you would need adapters you know like obviously not now with usb-c but like it's even like with the roland boutiques right you have the micro whatever it's called before they made it USB micro usb i believe yeah micro usb on like every one but the two newest ones which are USB-C so it's like you can already see in that very short window of time where they've had to change the power port but that means like when you're powering them up you need two different wires for the set of boutiques yeah which is it's not um and this is like <laughs> modern it's a very modern problem but what they need to do is just not 
have that problem. Now, in all fairness, a lot of the Raxents that I have come with their own power supplies. A fair half of them have um, IECs. That is, that's the right acronym. Yeah, yeah, IECs yeah. or kettles. Kettle, kettle plugs, plugs, IEC power in, which is great because that's ideal. There's a handful of them that have their own sort of like a sort of like barrel plug uh, connector, which, you know, I got with most of the synths anyway. So that is the only snag. So you can't really complain at two of them having different to the rest when there's like a handful of specialised, you need a certain specific power to turn some of these racks on. And all of this, ultimately, ultimately, this is just to make the company more money, like Apple. Like, it's just so you can say, well... Why give them an IEC that anybody can have when we can just sell them a really expensive adapter because we can just make it awkward for the user so they have to buy our adapter for like whatever the price point is, which I still think is it's a bit of a predatory business practice because, again, they've already shelled out. I mean, at the time, some of these racks at the time are like two grand, three grand, aren't they? In the 90s. Yeah, some of them, like the Emu racks in 1997 when they came out was £999 each, which if you use an inflation calculator, would probably be a considerable amount now to buy new. Yeah. Uh, if you was, you know, thinking about it in terms of like uh, inflation and, you know, how popular the gear is and stuff. It's a big purchase is uh, £999 so- in 1997. It's one of those things where if you pay like a really big premium price, you really don't want to get messed about with additional adapters and stuff if you lose yours, you know. It's one of those things. It's no different to modern gaming where they're like, here's your 90 quid game. Now, do you want to pay for the rest of it? And you go, well, no, I paid 90 quid for the game. If I didn't want to pay for the game, I would have played Fortnite or something. The other thing that is similar to the gaming industry in any sort of like Netflix or anything is that in this digital realm you just you are told you no longer have access to this um and that's what i like about old tech you know particularly like in music equipment like emu went bankrupt they got sold emu and ensonic were sold together paired together and then they both went out of business in like 2002 and then um they still work there's still no issue using them whereas what i worry about with people say I mean, Roland and Cog are big companies. You know, they're very unlikely to go out of business. Yeah, it doesn't feel like they're going anywhere, does but it? if you have all your Roland Cloud synths and you have, you know, your plug-out synths with different, you know, like you've got the Promars in System 1Ms or, or, or stuff like that, and Roland just says, um, we've had a bad year financially. We're done. Um, all of our products are discontinued. The software will only work for another five years. That... That's fine, unless you're sat in a studio and you're sponsored by Roland or whatever, and you've got, you know, like 50 grand worth of products that all have USB drivers, because that's the thing with modern synths now. They all have USB drivers. They have, you know, separate desktop or app plugins and stuff. And then that's what starts to not work. A bit like we've, we've got a Focusrite liquid mix, and it works fine if you roll back the drivers to Windows... Um, I think it worked fine on Windows 8. Windows 8, but it didn't work on Windows 10. <laughs> I don't think it worked work anymore. Um, or was it even earlier than that, though? Was it even earlier it than Windows It could have been 8? Windows 7 when we used it. We used it a lot at one point, probably in 2014 again. 
Yeah, so like I say, it, maybe. it's just one of those frustrations with modern technology, really, uh, because everything has to connect to the internet and everything has to connect to a computer. They can't just sell you a box. That's what's so nice about guitar pedals. Yes, I think that's why people love the boutique you, guitar pedal. You yeah. just get your guitar pedal and it will always work unless you throw it in like a furnace or throw it in, the, in like water. Now, what I will say is I think in recent years, companies have got very good at supplying a USB or computer integration that helps the unit, but you can you can use the unit fine without that. Say like a lot of the U, a lot of the Roland stuff, you can throw it into a computer, you can change your patches around and blah blah blah. Or you can just say, I'm not going to use the USB function. Provide it and you don't have to update. The, the other thing is you don't have to update these synths. But when they say the update grants you like six extra oscillators then you're like well i sure i sort of deserve the update the, the other thing like is is you get promised all these features that don't happen like i've got the krk rocket the the newer model and the I, remember, five, I believe yeah yeah the fives and i remember when i bought them um it said we're gonna have an app where you can turn them up and down on your phone that app never came out there's no way to turn it up or down remotely so you have to go walk up to the back of the speaker individually, not as a pair, and turn the volume up and down, which isn't a deal breaker. I can still do it. But like I say, it said that there was going to be an app. And then from what I've seen, there is still no app. And the thing is, though, that's okay if you use something like a monitor volume wheel and you have it set on full and you use something else to gain it down. But if you're using it in like a hi-fi environment and you just need to turn your speakers up and down, well, then it's annoying, isn't it, to have to set them both from the digital display as you have, which to. is on the back of it as well. So it's just yeah. it's just one of those things. It's not really a deal breaker, and like you say, for a lot of studio applications, you wouldn't have to worry about that because you would have a separate monitor control that does its volume for the speakers, like we have for our vocals in our studio. You know, it's not a deal breaker, but it's just like an example of being promised these features that come in later via like desktop apps or mobile apps and it's like you know they should just stick to having all the features in the box yeah well i suppose this this is this sort of comes into the modern product rollout of well every product's got to have a so many year plan to keep the product alive so you can't just release a finished thing if it you know you can and a lot of people do but for example with um anything that has you know, firmware integration or anything like that, that, that you can drop a USB-C in and you can update, it's sort of expected with a lot of these products that, well, in maybe like a year's time, there might be a 2.0 where you get extra stuff. And that's sort of become, not the standard, but it's become, um, you know, a regular occurrence among a lot of gear, particularly I feel like the... Um, new wave of sort of Eurorack and um, desktop synths that have USB connectivity. So you can just go in and sort of be like, right, we put some new um, modulation effects in there for you, or we put some new oscillators in, and you just have a shift thing with your oscillator knob, and then all of a sudden, boom, you've got double as many oscillators. And I think that's really cool, because can you imagine earning like a, a, a Moog, I'm trying to remember the Moog Model D, it's a Model D, isn't it? The real old one. I'm trying to think of the, old, the oldest one. Yeah. I believe it's a Moog Model D. Anyway, you know the one I'm talking about. The one that Behringer's ripped off. Yeah, the one that Behringer's ripped off. Which one that Behringer's ripped off? But anyway, the one that um, 
is the classic Moog that you see on the 70s stuff. Imagine somebody in one of them studios being told, yo, that oscillator just got six more waveforms. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know that what you would mean. be insane. Like, that would be unbelievable. People would have been like, well, how, how can you just... And, and there's no additional thing you need to plug in or buy. So, you know, I'm not saying the technology is bad because everybody loves getting more value for money. And if they can import a bunch more oscillators, something like, as I, I believe um, the Behringer Brains module has done this very recently, haven't they? Where yeah, they yeah. put a bunch more module, uh, bunch more oscillators in. That's a really nice thing from a um, customer appreciation point of view because you only, get more value for money. The only problem when it goes the other way, like with subscription models being so popular, is it's like, at what point do you get given a brand new Shaw SM58, you know, S or whatever, and then... You know, you look at the side of the microphone and it says, uh, you've got two months left to use it before you have to pay again. Yeah, I don't like that. And um, I don't like the idea of somebody saying, yeah, if you subscribe to, say, xcompany.com, not Twitter, um, (laughs) we will unlock like a 20 dB pad button on the back of your mic and stuff like that. That seems very dystopian and very horrible. So we don't want to see that. But I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it, where I suppose that, that... most companies, and this is what I respect about SSL. SSL, they've come out with a bunch of new hardware, a bunch of um, more budget hardware for, for you know, people in project studios or people who are just tinkering. Um, and they've come out with a really, really impressive software line. And you can either subscribe or buy, and they've made it clear that at no point you'll be locked out of um, being able to buy these plugins. They'll always be able to buy and I think there's a lot of companies that are so quick to try and monetize their audience. They need to think, look, if we monetize our audience, are we going to have an audience left to monetize? That's the question you need to ask yourself because there's a lot of people who who are bright enough to know that a subscription model is not the best business decision. Because you can't subscribe. Like if we subscribe to everything in this room... Uh, you would not be able to pay for it every month. No. You, or every you, year. Well, you just roll into bankruptcy, and that's that's the full problem. You know, it's hard enough keeping a music tech-based business afloat as it is. I mean, most people don't make any money at all because, I mean, all you have to do is look at what Spotify is doing. You know, there's constant threats from all of the um, sort of platforms to basically make it harder and harder and harder for you to earn any sort of revenue. And also, like, plugins have gone from being £150 to two to £300 to being like, can you please just, we'll give you it for free. It really? I mean, the Black Friday deals are insane, some of them. Right. I mean, the Complete Start. I'm sat there thinking, if we could have started with Complete Start, I mean, it's insane. It, it, it's it, insane. It's gone from it being such an expensive pastime to the companies being so desperate, a bit like with Game Pass and like, like this sort of style thing that Xbox is doing, where you're almost like inundated with free things to a point where you go, well, I don't have time. I don't have time and I don't want that. And then it's like, it, it's gone the other way where things were expensive and you had to choose very wisely what you wanted. So now you're like almost given so many free licenses that you go, I don't have time to get into all this. And it also devalues it from every perspective. It does devalue it. And um, I just find that it's difficult, especially if you do stuff like we make some little sample packs. It's hard because I can't give all them sample packs away because that's all we sell. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It sounds so stupid. 
And we barely, you know, we don't make tons and tons of money anyway. So I can't afford to give away all them sample packs on Black Friday just because somebody says, well, it's Black Friday. I need you to give everything away for like free or like nine dollars so or, i can't like do five that. five dollars for five packs or whatever it's yeah. like it's not worth because doing as you say man that devalues the product so if i do that say i go on reason and i slash everything to nine dollars that sets a precedent that these packs may only be nine dollars and this is the thing a lot of companies have struggled with is they do the sales to 29 dollars and like then waves. they go yeah, and then they go, right, how do we charge more? It's like, well, you sort of can't. You, you've set a precedent that everything is going to be $29. And so everything in people's minds is. And then when you ask them for $299 for a plugin, they're probably going to sit there and think, I'll wait till it's on sale. And it's a very risky business practice because you are going to find that people can wait because it's a lot of money to spend on not a lot in some instances. And also, so. there's nothing worse than buying something for £299 in a week later. Somebody says, hey, it's 29 quid. That that happens a lot as well with the uh, grace periods, doesn't it? On the yeah. software. Um, full doors and everything. Ableton Cubase. A lot of people are like, every single time they announce a new version, people are like, yo, I bought this last week. Can you hook me up? And I was like, no. So this studio... <laughs> Uh, discussion is more tending to like the pros and cons of modern equipment and like what you expected as a consumer to deal with all of the time, which is quite interesting. I mean, everybody's got a different space and there's only so much you can do with your own studio desk. So yeah. I think the software and the, the hardware and, and like new products is slightly more interesting than saying, well, you know, we could only put eight racks in our table because everybody's got a different table and you can't see the table anyway. So I'm glad we've sort of gone down this route today. Um, also... Um, we're sort of living in a golden age in a way of consumer music equipment. What is the equipment you like? What sort of equipment, you know, do you not like? And are you all in the box or do you do that hybrid workflow? Or are you, dare I say it, all out of the box, in which case you probably won't be listening to this because you won't do podcasts. (laughs) Right, I've been Mark. And I've been Peter. Thanks for listening. See you next week.